What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success in and out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares to set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys I was in Leavenworth with and others who served time at other prisons. We're going to be talking about life before prison, life in prison, and life out of prison. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that will help you knock down some of the prisons you've built up in your own mind. Folks, today I have something that I've, I've got somebody here that I think you're going to love this story because it's got a little bit of everything. It's almost like a movie. But Marvin Cotton Jr., who I had on a few podcasts ago, if you all remember, he was in prison for 20 years for a, a, a murder he did not do and was innocent. And was finally set free and is doing some great things. In fact, he's running for uh, in Michigan for the 11th district. And anyway, Marvin and I were talking uh, the other day, and he said, Man, you got to talk to Daryl Woods. He's the man. He said, You got to talk to Daryl if you can run him down. Well, Daryl and I have connected, and I want to give a little introduction here because Daryl admittedly talks about that he, he ran. Uh, in a hard world before all this happened to him. But at 18 years old, he went into a house to buy some marijuana and there was a murder that went down and he took the fall for it. And it was a murder that he was not involved in. And he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole and basically sentenced to die in prison. And he, um, he had actually, seven years later, a witness recant their testimony. A judge overturned it, said he was wrongly convicted. Then it went through the appeals process. It took 16 years of trying to get him out of there. And finally, finally, after all that time, 16 years later, the governor sets him free, commutes his sentence, and Daryl has hit the ground running since he's been out. And while he was in, he did good things. He uh, had a program called Scared Straight where um, this helped uh, youth that were in prison uh, that he'll talk about. He also, when he got out, he, I mean, I'm not talking about any time he's wasted. It's 2019. Daryl uh, got his GED when he was in prison. He dropped out in eighth grade. Um, so he, he got his GED. When he got out, he went to um, – Get a, so he went to classes for uh, sociology, criminal justice, restorative justice at the University of Michigan. And he's, in, he's been appointed by the governor uh, to do work in the state of Michigan. Uh, he's, just, uh, he's just an incredible person with an incredible story. Daryl Woods, thank you for being here today. Uh, absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here, Brett. Um, and thank you for having me, and thank you for the great work that you're doing. Well, I appreciate that. I, Daryl, let's go back a little bit because your your story starts where I started reading where this happened, and it sounded like you know you were a, a teenager that was you know probably in a rough neighborhood doing some things that happened in rough neighborhoods. Um, give me some insight on what what was it like growing up when when you were teenager or kid? Great, great question. Um, to give you some context of my background, I grew up in the city of Detroit. 
uh, primarily raised by my grandmother. I was primarily raised by my grandmother because uh, when my mother was pregnant with me, uh, my biological father died while I was in her womb. Mm. Uh, my mother had three children prior, and I was her fourth child. And so she had a breakdown uh, after my father died. And when she had me, she ended up getting hooked on heroin because she uh, went to that as a coping mechanism to be able to uh, deal with some of the stress. She ran to that uh, and got influenced by that. Uh, so my mother was uh, addicted all of my life, young life. And uh, my grandmother had to raise me and the rest of my siblings. And so we were primarily raised by my grandmother uh, on the west side of Detroit. My grandmother had 11 children at the time. And uh, some of those children had children as well. Uh, and so my I'm living with my grandmother, with my siblings, and uh, it's a transit center for her children's children and uh, sometimes her children. And so it wasn't not a lot of space. There wasn't a lot of resources there. And sometimes you get lost in the shuffle, Yeah, you know? And so uh, the key thing though, that my grandmother did uh, raise me in church. So you lived in her house, you went to church. And so we went to church every Sunday. We went to Bible study uh, and a couple of other services throughout the week. <laughs> and, and so, uh, which was wonderful for me, uh, because I, I was exposed to something, um, that was greater than myself, uh, being able to have some knowledge of spirituality and some form of spirituality, uh, growing up as a kid and what you really needed in the neighborhood I grew up in. Um, um, a lot of people were selling drugs and a lot of people were doing, a lot of negative things in the, in the neighborhood. Uh, but I ended up rebelling and uh, leaving my grandmother's home and running away to go try to find my mother. My mother was living in the cast quarters, which is one of the roughest parts of the city of Detroit at that time. Mm. Uh, it was like uh, a, a terrible nightmare to be able to go into this particular location. So I walked from the west side of Detroit all the way to the Cass Quarters, which was miles and miles. And I followed the path that my grandparents uh, took me on when we went to go visit my mother down in the Cass Quarters. How old would you been, Daryl? And and the, I was uh, at that time I was twelve years old. Wow. You know, uh, wow. and so uh, I I rebelled, left left home, ran away. I eventually found my mother down in the cast quarters. Uh, she tried to send me back. I wouldn't go back. And so I stayed down there with her for a period of time. A uh, short time uh, after me being down there, uh, I eventually got hooked up with the wrong crowd and started being a runner for some of the drug dealers down there. Because uh, was, what was in that area was a bunch of drugs, uh, uh, prostitution, and every other illicit behavior that you can imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I, I sold drugs uh, for this organization. It was an orga uh, organized um, group of, uh, of men, primary men uh, down there who used younger African-American young men to help them sell drugs because, uh, you know, the younger people would get juvenile time versus 
adult time and things of that nature. And so they use a lot of uh, uh, young uh, men to be able to uh, sell their drugs. And and that was uh, the beginning of my sorrows, me running away from home, uh, then dropping out of school in the eighth grade. Yeah, yeah. Because there's really nothing good that happens, you know, when you're not in school, you're, you're going to be running with people who aren't in school. And that's usually not going to be the good crowd to be with. Absolutely. And, and I tried to go to school. Uh, I was uh, forced down in that area to uh, when I was I was selling drugs while I was going to school in middle school. And so I would take the drugs to school with me, not to sell in school. But when I got out of school, I would go to the area in which we sold the drugs to sell the drugs. So I would have a handgun on me as well as some drugs on me. Uh, when I left the school uh, to go sail, you know, it was that terrible. Uh, and um, it, but I was not the only one. It was so many young people yeah. uh, in, at that age, uh, 13, 12, 13 years old, who was exposed to this terrible and horrific lifestyle. Well, lead me into, because um, it doesn't talk a lot about it here, because I was, I was grabbing the things that, that were available on the internet, but the night that the nightmare happened that you walk into this house, can you lead us through that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and and to catch you up to that very, very quickly, yeah. uh, uh, I ran away uh, out there, dropped out of school at age 13, uh, got shot at the age of 14, standing on the corner because it was someone else's beef in the organization. Someone was trying to shoot me in the back of my head. Um, but end up, uh, I turned around and I startled them and they shot me in my arm right here. And uh, I ended up getting shot at the age of 14, almost lost my arm. Wow. Age of, age of 15, um, uh, I ended up getting my son, mother pregnant. Age of 16, I have my son, Daryl Woods Jr. Uh, age of 16 still, I get my daughter mother pregnant. And at the age of 17, I end up having my daughter. Uh, still out there uh, living uh, a life of crime and drugs, uh, but trying my best to uh, focus on getting my life together as well. Because I, after I had my children, I struggled with the streets. Yeah. Uh, because I really wanted to try my best to be a father to my children, but just didn't have the capacity or the tools that I needed. Yeah, you were a teenager um, so, yourself. I'm glad we didn't skip over that. So you had both your uh, son and daughter at ages of basically before you were 18. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so at the tender age of 18, I found myself in a, a drug house uh, doing a drug deal. Uh, me and my co-defendant, which was my little cousin, we went to a house to go purchase marijuana from a friend house who sold marijuana there. Uh, and at that time, someone else was there setting up another deal because they was meeting someone else there to do a cocaine deal. And, and in the midst of that cocaine deal, uh, someone uh, got into an argument. Two gentlemen got into an argument over the price of the drugs. And in the midst of that argument, gentleman pulled a gun out and the gentleman ran in the back bedroom and they had an altercation back there. Uh, gunfire went out. A uh, gentleman got shot and I found out later killed 
uh, in that back bedroom. Uh, needless to say, when that gunfire happened, uh, bedlam and chaos happened in the home. Uh, me and my co-defendant is there along with, uh, it was seven of us all together, included the deceased uh, in the home. So all kind of hell broke loose because there was bars on the windows. The, do the door was shut with a deadbolt lock. We couldn't get up out of there. So well, we tried to find a way to get out of there. Eventually someone found a window without uh, a bars on the window and, and everybody uh, fled through that window after it was bust out. Um, uh, they wanted me for questioning at first. Uh, I didn't respond to that. And uh, eventually they put a warrant out for my arrest uh, and saying that they wanted me to come down and I didn't do that. I, I, I didn't cooperate. I left town and was uh, eventually arrested in Florida and uh, extradited back here to the state of Michigan. And they eventually charged me as well as my co-defendant as aiding in the betters in this homicide. Wow. Wow. So you get brought back. Uh, they charge you. Did you think at the time, Daryl, that what was going through your mind at the time? I, want, I, I didn't want nothing to do with any of this. You know, um, first and foremost, I didn't shoot anyone. I didn't plan for anyone to get shot. My co-defendant didn't plan this. We had no knowledge that uh, this was going to happen. Didn't no one know, know this it was going to happen because it was just a terrible situation that happened out of an argument and something that we had no knowledge that took place in the back bedroom. Um, uh, so, you know, my in my mind that there's no way in the world that I'm about to get convicted uh, for something that I had no knowledge and no plan in, uh, and so that we should be okay. Uh, but that didn't happen. So they come to you, and I, I, what kind of representation did you have? Uh, I had a, a paid attorney. My co-defendant had a paid attorney. And then I ended up firing that attorney, and uh, they appointed me a counsel, and they appointed me someone that was very, very reputable. And so I kept that attorney, and my co-defendant kept uh, his paid attorney, uh, and uh, we eventually uh, both got convicted. Man, it was a, a, a nightmare, as T you were saying. Uh, no it, yeah, T tell me about the day of sentencing. I can't imagine what would have gone through your mind. What what was the sentence, and and what was what was your what was your reaction to that? Let me start the day I got convicted. The day I got convicted, uh, it was terrible. I end up uh, when the jury came back with the verdict and they read the verdict. I cussed everybody out in the courtroom. I cussed the judge out. I cussed the prosecutor out. I cussed the jury out. I cussed myself out. You know, and I was just very very angry and bitter. I said I didn't do this. Mm -hmm. You know, and 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 I was just uh, ha I had a temper tantrum, uh, tamper. You know, it was just terrible, man. Uh, and so after cussing everybody out, my grandmother stood up in the courtroom and she yelled out something. I didn't know what she said at that time. Uh, and so, but it calmed me down. Whatever she said, mm -hmm. and then uh, I, I was able to get out of there. Sentencing day, they give me life without the possibility of parole. I knew when I got found guilty that I had life without the possibility of parole sentence now, and that they was going to condemn me to a death while incarcerated sentence. You know, and so uh, 
I, I knew what that was going to be. And so when I got to the prison, uh, I got to the uh, quarantine and then they, for one month, and then they shipped me to the Michigan Reformatory. The Michigan Reformatory is also known as Gladiator School. Mm. Everything went down there. People were getting stabbed. People were getting hit upside the head. Uh, people were getting robbed. They were getting pressed. But there was also an element in there who were trying to educate themselves and try to do the right thing. And, and they went to church or went to other religious services. And so there was this, a remnant there and a segment there who wanted to do the right thing. And, and, and I, I call these people old school. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I was at a fork in the road when I got to the prison. Either I was going to go down this road where they sold drugs, they used drugs and did all kinds of things. Or I was going to go down a road where they went to church, where they went to the law library, and they tried to empower themselves with the tools that they needed to win. So I went down that right road. And immediately, because I, I was at a rock bottom moment, I felt that I had felt my children. I felt myself. And at that time, my mother had uh, got off of drugs and uh, was able to be functionally present even in my trial and in my life. And so when she, she gets sober, I go to prison, mm. you know? Uh, and so it was a terrible situation. And so when I ordered my trial transcripts uh, for my lawyer and I read the transcripts and I read them all the way through, it was almost 700 pages, got to the end of those transcripts. That spectator who was my grandmother who yelled out in the courtroom, I don't, didn't know what she said at the time, but this is what she said. She said, don't give up, son. Prayer changes everything. Uh, God is the only judge. Mm. You know, and that revolutionized my life. I, I received those words in my spirit, and it gave me a strength and a peace to fight on. And that's what I did. I, I, I began to uh, go to church. I began to read the Bible. Even as an eighth grade dropout, I learned how to read uh, uh, by reading the Bible and reading law books. And so I began to develop myself and I began to sit up under leadership um, that were about uh, helping young men like myself to be able to transform my my thinking and, and my life. And so that was the journey. Uh, for me, that the new journey for me and my new beginning and my new fresh start. And I always say that with the devil meant for evil, God turned around for good. You know, Daryl, you know what I think is interesting about that? Because there's a lot of times we talk about those rock bottom moments, you know, and I think when you hit that rock bottom um, and, you know, I don't know if everybody hits rock bottom, but when you have that rock bottom moment, you remember it and it does change you. And, you know, For me, it was the idea that I'm going to survive this, you know, flipping the script, not being a victim and survival gives you and a survivor gives you strength and and a victim takes away all your strength. And and what it sounds like to me is, is that rock bottom moment, you took those words from your grandmother that gave you strength. You knew you were going to step through whatever you were going to step through. And that's regardless if it was uh, scary. I mean, you were in a in a bad situation. But making the right decision, you know, you, it would have been easy for you to go down the wrong path because that was a path that was familiar. 
you chose the path that wasn't familiar in a bad place, which uh, that's incredible, really. Uh, absolutely. That's spot on, uh, uh, Brett. Um, for sure, I took on that victor's mentality and not that victim mentality. Yes. Uh, because to be a victim in there is to go insane. Yeah. To be a victim in there is to be consumed by that, uh, what has you bound. You know, and so I didn't. I can't afford to allow my heart to become bitter, but I had to become better. Yeah. You know, uh, and so the only way that I can be any good uh, to my children, I had to be good to myself first, and that means I had to educate myself. I had to empower myself with the necessary tools so that I could be able to father my children as best I could from behind prison bars. Wow. I had to do what I needed to do in order for me to be able to uh, get myself out of that situation that I was in. And uh, and I saw I, I watched people walk around in circles on the prison yard and on, they wasn't going anywhere. But going around a circle or playing basketball and playing chess and playing games and just stuck in that situation without understanding that they still had a purpose in life. Yeah. And so uh, when I recognized that my purpose uh, in life was my passion and my passion was my purpose, I was able to be able to take on the mantra of services to rent we pay for the space that we occupy. Mm-hmm. You know, and so either I was going to allow God to use me for the good for my children and for those around me and for people in the community or I was just going to wallow in my misery. And sometimes uh, if you allow yourself to do that, uh, you'll get addicted to your own misery and you'll be no good to yourself or no one else. And I think what happens with that, Daryl, because it's, it's a deep thought of what you're talking about, because I think what happens in that type of situation, people get institutionalized in a bad routine and an ugly, an ugly routine, but it becomes a comfort and that comfort becomes the thing that they won't be able to step out of because they've become too comfortable with that. And that becomes where they can't step towards an opportunity. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's says so much for you for the fact that it takes a lot not to lose yourself in prison. You gotta, you've got to almost have a strategy to keep yourself being you because you don't want to fall into that trap. You know, you, you have a, a bad day, a bad another day, and then all of a sudden, a bad week, you fall into the abyss on a slippery slope. You've got to constantly be aware that I've got to be me. And I want to know, too, when you get in there and you start reading and looking at transcripts, you obviously didn't lose hope that you were going to be able to set yourself free. Uh, how, did, how did that all play out for you? Because it didn't, it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen overnight, but it happened immediately in terms of uh, me making a choice to choose something better. Yeah. What better was, I didn't know, but I had to walk in it and I had to find out. I had to discover it. I had to listen. I had to sit up under the old school guys to be able to teach me. Uh, my grandmother would send me uh, audio tapes of my former pastor uh, uh, who pastored a very prominent church in the city of Detroit. Uh, and he also wrote me letters. And when he died in 1996, his sons also poured into my life and, and encouraged me, inspired me, 
My grandmother prayed with me and I was able to learn how to pray with my children. Mm. And so as my children grew up, they never knew me as a criminal because I never uh, showed them that type of lifestyle because I, 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 uh, read with them on a visit. I prayed with them on a visit. I called their teachers as they got older. I reached out and helped them with their homework. And so I was thoroughly engaged in their their lives. lives. Yeah, you were in their lives. From from since they was children all the way even to now. You know, and so I was blessed to say that uh, not, not, not allow my wounds to get in the way of my fatherhood or not not allowing my wounds to get in the way of me fighting for freedom. Yeah. And so I kept my eyes on the prize, but in the same token, as I continued to discover my purpose, I I, I became involved with the NAACP. We helped organize the NAACP at the prison I was in, and we did some remarkable work. Can you talk Raised about that, Daryl? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Raised over $100,000 for charitable causes. Uh, was able to get college scholarships for young people. We even organized and uh, did so much good in there that we was able to get summer jobs for youth that was in our youth program. It's not scared straight, but it was cared straight. You know, so cared that was straight. the name of our program, program, cared straight, cared straight, not scared straight. Because we come to find out that young people are not really scared of anything. <laughs> That's and right. you can see that now. <laughs> you know. Uh, they might be scared of the boogeyman, but they not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, no, you know. And so, uh, was able to just serve in there and to give back. I was on the warden form. Uh, I helped people with their cases. It was able to help get people out of prison. I became the leader in the church services and became became an ordained minister in there. I'm, I'm I'm a licensed elder through my church right now. You know, and so being able to minister to people and to wrap my arms around people, both inside here as well as outside. So do you think that was probably your biggest strategy is, is that you, once you hit that rock bottom, you started giving back, you started helping people, you started creating, uh, making a difference and, and change for the good. Um, I, I would think that that also helped you with just with your time in general. Oh, absolutely. It was, it's very rewarding whether you inside or outside to be able to live your purpose, Mm -hmm. you know, fulfill the purpose in which you are on earth. And I felt strongly that my purpose was to help others and to be able to minister to others and to uh, comfort others and wrap my arms around others. Even I had people who were victimized by homicide come in there. We honored them and was able to do special things with them and to, and to uh, allow them to weep in our arms and to be able to find resources to be able to help them. You know, that, that was very fulfilling. Mm. You know, uh, it was very fulfilling uh, to be able to do back to school drives and be able to not just give people, uh, young people, pens and pencils and, and all the tools that they needed. We gave them hygiene kits to go with our school supplies, but we also wrote letters in, 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 a, in every book bag and put them in every book bag, you know, uh, to the young people to encourage them and to inspire them uh, to stay away from criminal behavior and to be able to understand that their education was their passport to their future and their freedom. Yeah. Well, let's go into your, because while you're in there, uh, 
six or seven years in, you get a judge that that uh, looks at your case and overturns it. So absolutely, uh, what uh, can you walk us through that? How did because <laughs> that that absolutely. had to be an incredible thing that happened. It was the judge who presided over my original trial. Okay, that's even more the interesting. The one where where I cussed everybody out. Yeah. A uh, very good judge, great guy, uh, Judge George Crockett the uh, Third. He uh, overseen the Malice Green trial. The Malice Green trial is where uh, uh, two police officers killed an unarmed black man, and it was the first time I, I believe in the United States history uh, where a prosecutor ended up prosecuting a police officer and getting a conviction. So she prosecuted too, uh, prosecuted Kim Worthy. Uh, and so uh, Judge Crockett uh, granted me a hearing uh, in 2001. And with this hearing lasted from 2001 all the way to 2003. Uh, we had witnesses get on the stand. Uh, we had the uh, prosecutor uh, do their due diligence. And after all that was done, the, ju the judge who presided over my trial concluded that I was wrongfully convicted and I was convicted on false and perjured testimony and overturned my conviction and my co-defendant conviction. Uh, and so it was a very joyous day. You know, it was a day of reckoning. It was like, uh, yes, we, we've been vindicated and uh, we have an opportunity to reclaim our lives back. And uh, my family was ecstatic. My children was ecstatic because one thing, that my children always asked me was, Dad, when you coming home? Mm. And I always, I always say soon. Soon. So, so five years, uh, six years, seven years, ten years, soon, son, I, soon, daughter, I'll be home, you know. And so I thought that soon had came in 2003. Right. After 13 years of incarceration, 13 years of being away from my children, 13 years of agony. Uh, uh, 13 years of missing out. By that time, my mother had died. I had lost, lost uncles, uncles and, uh, and aunts and other family members at that time. And I was like, well, I would have the opportunity to get back to my grandmother, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, that didn't happen because uh, the prosecutor had appealed that and they originally first got knocked down and then they ended up getting uh, their appeal reinstated and they won the appeal, and that was snatched away from me and my co-defendant. It was a, uh, a devastating day uh, uh, for my family, more so than for me. How do you, you know, how do you handle that, Daryl? Being going through being on such a high, and knowing and thinking that you're finally going home and you're going to be with your family, and then all of a sudden it it, it turns a complete jump off a cliff uh, change. Well, I turned to my prayers and I turned to my purpose. I, I recognize, and see, you have to get to this point where you have a life without the possibility of parole sentence. You know, I prayed for strength and I wasn't, my relationship with God and my fellowship in the church was not based upon a get out of jail free card. Right. I had an intimate relationship uh, with God. And, and I felt that, uh, hey, if I had to die in there, I was going to die empty and that I was going to die fulfilling my purpose. 
And so I continued to serve. I continued to give back. I didn't throw, and, and I, I, I also continued to keep hope alive. Yeah. You know, I, you're like, no you're like that old Chinese proverb, get knocked down six times, get up seven. I mean, uh, you, you just kept getting knocked down and getting right back up. Resilience. Absolutely. Resilience. Absolutely. And I'm sure, I'm sure that's, that's why you are sitting in the seat that you're sitting in right now doing this interview. Uh, a man with a testimony like yourself, you know, uh, recognizing that uh, your, your purpose is very, very important. And being able to get messages like this out on the airways, because it's a message of hope from both of us. Yes. Uh, even from Marvin. And I'm sure all of the people that you bring on your show, you're trying to get out a message that uh, that you can get through this. You can make it. The yeah. glass is half full and not half empty. You know, just because you're going through that situation that you're going through right now, uh, that don't mean that life is over with. Right. And then it's always someone worse off than you. Yeah. You know, so so when you have that mindset and when you develop that in your spirit, you know, you can keep on keeping on. And you can just say, let go and let God, you know. And so to answer your question, I just continue to walk in prayer and purpose and trusting God that he will make a way out of no way. But like the three Hebrew boys that was in the fiery furnace, they said, and he said, if he don't deliver me, I know he's still able. And so we're going to continue to do what we need to do to please our maker, you know? So you, you were saying that your kids took that really hard and but I think probably it showed them too that you were showing strength that you weren't giving up. You know, the one thing you don't want to ever take away from somebody is hope. You know, that's the one thing that if, as long as you have hope, as long as you have the ability to get up the, and, and take the step, you haven't lost. You know, the only time you, you lose is when you quit. And Daryl, you didn't and and you couldn't have possibly have known that it was going to take you 16 years to get to the final freedom, but you kept stepping through that. And as you were doing that, you were doing good things while you were in there. When did it start feeling like that maybe something was going to happen after all these appeals that you finally felt like that maybe this was the time? Well, I went to the Sixth Circuit Court. I got knocked down in the Federal District Court, went to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. They let me in. And we was able to do some amazing things. I met an attorney named uh, Robert Rosano, phenomenal guy, uh, angel owner. Uh, and this gentleman worked with me and he did all my pleadings in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And I just knew everything was going to be good uh, because they allowed me in and they appointed Robert Rosano from Cincinnati, Ohio. He would drive to uh, Detroit, Michigan, to the prison I was at and come visit me. And I took every phone call, talked to my family, wow. a very, very beautiful guy. So I thought that was going to be another opportunity. And they end up killing me on procedure mm. ground. And, and so I was like, wow, you know, went to the United States Supreme court. They wouldn't hear the case. Uh, so all appeals are exhausted. Mm. Uh, went before the uh, governor, 
uh, Democratic governor three times. Uh, that was denied uh, for commutation. Uh, one time it looked like uh, 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 Governor Granholm, uh, who is now the energy secretary, she was going to commute it, but something happened bad in the media and she stopped all commutation. Oh, man. Timing. You know, and so uh, now, 2018, uh, my uh, pastor come and I sent a, I sent a word to him that uh, he needed to come do a revival in the prison or we was going to have a riot. <laughs> and he, so he came uh, with about 50 members of the church, choir members, and had a beautiful time in there. Uh, Bishop Charles Ellis, he uh, come there and say, uh, he said, look, I know that you love this guy. I know y'all have an appreciation for him. but And I know he served you guys well, but his time is up. And he prayed over me. And after he finished praying over me, the dude kissed me on the cheek in the joint, man. Like, <laughs> There's a first. <laughs> yeah, I said, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> and that was just encouraging. Yeah. yeah. And I left that day with that blessed assurance, with that, with that fortitude in my spirit that now was the time to seize the moment. Yeah. And so God had put uh, other pastors in my pathway, like uh, uh, Reverend Christian Adams from Hartford Memorial Baptist Church uh, and uh, Reverend Kenneth Flowers, who led the charge uh, from Greater New Mount Moriah. He was a very good friend of mine. And, and I had his brother was incarcerated with me for a period of time. And we were very, very close. So he led the charge to go before Governor Snyder. Uh, to meet with them on a on an annual basis and threw my name in the hat and kept on speaking my name to Governor Snyder at every meeting that they had to the point where Governor Snyder would say, okay, I know Reverend uh, Daryl Wood. <laughs> yes. I got his name in my head. <laughs> right, absolutely. And so when it came time, uh, you know, I filed my commentation uh, with the help of a good friend and uh, leader who helped also lead the charge, uh, Tom Adams from Chance for Life, and uh, uh, the State Appellate Defender's Office, which I now sit on the board of. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, they they put together my petition and filed my commentation. Wow. And, uh, and I helped them out along with Robert Rosano because Robert Rosano uh, took me to the uh, United States Supreme Court for free. Mm. And then he helped draft up the uh, commentation for free. Good man. God putting all these angels around me yeah. because, you know, and it wasn't, it, it was because they saw something good in me and it, they also believed uh, in me, yeah. you know, and, and, and believe that, that I deserve a new chance at life out in this world. Yeah. And so they fought. And so on, uh, on October the 16th, first I was granted on 7-11, on July 11, 2018, I was grant, granted a hearing, uh, and they decided to push me through for a public hearing. Okay. So I met one-on-one -on -one with the parole board, and it was very miraculous. I'm talking about thousands and thousands of people filed. Mm. 
uh, over 6,000 petitions has been filed at this time. That's impressive. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm one uh, of 26 people that the governor end up commuting. But uh, I'm, I'm one of six people who had life without the possibility of parole. That's really Out of the thousands of petitions that were filed throughout the state. And so uh, on uh, October the 16th, 2018, I had, uh, was moved to this public hearing and we made history there. Uh, we was able to have uh, over, well, every, we had the whole room packed out and the fire marshals would not allow anyone in the room. And we had two busloads that couldn't get into the room. Wow, that's something else. I had professors, I had judges, I had lawyers, I had uh, uh, business people, I had my family, I had people fly in from other states. But I had my children there. Yeah. You know, my son spoke so powerfully in that room. And if you order those transcripts and get his words, you know, you'll probably ball, yep. <laughs> you know, because everyone in the room. Dad. Oh, absolutely. And we was able to do some good work together while I was in there. We worked together to make sure that he was able to get a uh, a uh, a college education. My son graduated from Michigan State University, not on a uh, not on a scholarship for academics, not for a scholarship uh, for sports but it's for scholarships that we found together. I, I helped identify for him and we sat down and worked on his applications together. And we sat down and I helped critique his uh, essays and we was able to get uh, enough college scholarships for him to go to Michigan State University for free. That's incredible. So he came out debt free. Wow. And, and so we, we was able to uh, just develop this beautiful relationship along with my daughter, Tiffany. Probably ought to have them oh, on the show, like right? <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Their story is way better. Well, than I mine. mean, the reason I say that, Daryl, is when, when someone goes to prison, your family goes to prison. They just have to deal with it on the outside, and they, their life uh, is forever changed. And But I don't think people truly understand that. When, when we talk about all these incarcerated people, you have to times that by two or four or six because those people also experience the, the world of the justice system in prison and they have to figure out how to get through it. And they, everybody has their own you know, issues that they have to, to walk through themselves. And it's, uh, it's all, you know, when your kids make it, you know, I've got three daughters that I'm so proud of and they made wow. it and um, you just have nothing but pride. Very, very powerful, uh, Brett. And that you can't, you can't underestimate that, you know, because, you know, either, you know, your ch your children statistically is said that it's likely to go to prison. Yeah. It's a great percentage of children of incarcerated parents. Either they're going to go to prison or they're going to get hooked up on drugs. Right. You know, or go down a negative uh, spiral yeah. or path, you know. Uh, and so by the grace of God, you know, our children are doing good. Yeah. You know, they're doing exceptionally well. Well, you I know. got you. I got you off the, the way you were talking about October 16th, um, 2018. What ended up happening that day? The prosecutor sent a two page letter opposing my release. Mm -hmm. 
the one that appealed it. And then the uh, attorney general was strongly against commutation. But the parole board member there, I seen a tear in his eye. I seen a tear in the attorney general's eye. And I seen tears in every, most of everybody's eye when my son finished speaking. Yeah. Very powerful. God, the presence of the Lord was in that room. Mm-hmm. And I had three women sitting in the, in the front row. I called them mothers of the church. They were in there praying for me. <laughs> I was, when I saw them, I said, okay, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be all right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I end up uh, waiting all the way into the last day of the legislative year. The last day of the legislative year, um, I, I, I'm a, I was a GED tutor among uh, uh, a bunch of other jobs I had. So the GED classes in the evening time. And so the GED instructor asked me to go make a copy in a library. I go make a copy in the library. And when I put the paper in the copier machine, I heard on the radio. Because the judge, I mean, the, the, the warden had asked me, and everybody knew that I was waiting and yeah. a few others were waiting. Uh, and, and the, the, the warden asked me, have you heard anything yet? I said, no, not yet. And so later on in that evening, while I was listening to the radio, or, well, well, I wasn't even listening to the radio. I would, went to go make the copy, put the paper in the machine. Then uh, it was announced on the radio uh, that Governor Snyder just commuted the census of 26 people. Wow, and I and I tell the uh, librarian, I said, "That's me," <laughs> and I left up out of there. I went down to the officer station. The officer was on the computer. I asked the officer. I said, "Pull up on the computer the commentations of Governor Snyder." And true enough, true to form, uh, he put it up. The Associated Press, uh, twenty-six names that he commuted. Uh, and out of the 26, uh, I was, uh, the last person on the list because my last name is Wood. So we scrolled all the way to the bottom. <laughs> oh, man, that's right. You are Woods. <laughs> and, and my name was on the bottom of the list, the last name. Oh man, Daryl. Yeah. Commuted my sense. What, what in the world were you thinking when you saw that? Man, that life without the possibility of parole oh. was signed away by the government. Just like that. Just like that. Stroke of the pen. Stroke of a pen. So I went into the room and I weep inside the GED classroom. And I try to keep a straight face because so many other people wanted this. Yeah. And so I did, you know, I'm not about to count this out this or, you know, put this in nobody's face or anything of that nature because it was a lot of miserable people there. Sure. uh, Because they wanted out. Yeah. And I was graced with this opportunity. So 2-12-2019, I was blessed to walk out of prison uh, into the arms of the son that I left at one year old. I chose him as the person to come inside the prison to retrieve me. What a story. He wept in my arms. Wow. And we wept in each other's arms. Mm. Uh, He wept like he was that one-year-old baby wanting his dad. All those emotions. Yeah, it was very, very powerful. Mm. I have a video of it. Uh, You're making me teary. I just listened to this. (laughs) (laughs) I just can't imagine the emotions you had. 
Oh, my God. But watch this. I'm about to blow your mind with this. <laughs> okay. 212 is the first three digits. What's the first three digits of the prison number that they gave me? Wow. And 212 is President Lincoln's birthday. Wow. That's and something. so I walked out of prison 212, 2019. And that new beginning and that fresh start uh, begun on that day. Well, Daryl, I mean, being in prison that long, I mean, it's so hard to get your mind around because I'm sitting here thinking I was in, I had a five-year sentence and I, I served three years of my federal sentence. And, and when I got in the car, it felt like everything was moving faster and, and you know, the world, I, was, I felt like I was jumping in a moving car. I can't imagine, I can't even get my mind around you stepping out of that prison 29 years later. I mean, what in the world is in your head and how is your head spinning knowing that you've been in there for 29, you're in this new world now that looks a lot different than it did 29 years ago. What was, what well, was the biggest thing that looked different to you in 29 years? Well, the cast quarters where my mother, when I ran away from home, yeah. uh, is now transformed to a, of a, uh, like a mecca for Detroit now. Wow. It's so much enterprise and so much good that's going on down there. Uh, and it, it, it was, it's a miracle. Mm -hmm. And so the, for, to see that, and then on the other flip side, some of the neighborhoods look like a bomb hit it. Yeah. You know, and so that was like, wow. And then they had these places called Super Walmart where my son had the audacity to try to take me in on the first day I got out. <laughs> and I said, I need to get out of here. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> too much going <laughs> you know, on. There's too much going on right now. <laughs> and so I had to gradually walk into that. And so uh, it was it was a very, very uh, beautiful day because it was a day that I prepared for. I was ready for Yeah. You know, it, it was nothing like it was, I, I, I ain't had to figure that now. Yeah. I just had to walk in my per continue to walk in my purpose. Yeah. You know, and so I, w I didn't have fear. I have faith over fear. I knew that the Lord would supply all of my needs and that things would work out like they need to work out. Well, and that happened. For and, me. and the thing that that is really remarkable about your story is, is that you didn't waste any time when you got out. I mean, I know there's a transition period of, you know, just kind of trying to get your legs and your sea legs ready to walk the real walk of being freedom. But I mean, 2019 is not that long ago. I mean, we're, we're in, uh, you know, June of 2022 and what you've accomplished in that time period and the things you've won awards uh, you've, you've been written up about. And I think this, you know, when all the George Floyd thing happened, you know, and, and, and the the division between, you know, the uh, the cops and the and the gangs and, the, and the, the feel of not being able to trust either side, you brought started bringing that together of having these two parties that don't get along and don't see each other eye to eye and had them break bread together at barbecues. And they started realizing that there was some commonality and they started reaching out to each other. And, and I, I just find that incredible because 
the time period that you've been out and the, the effective change for good that you've made, not only when you were in, but immediately when you got it, those were things that affect change for a long time. You, you're in the neighborhood. I'll let you tell the, how you've done this, but I was reading that and thinking those are the things, those are the pieces that actually make change. When you put those pieces together and that gang member can call that police officer and ask him for advice. You know, th- those, I was reading this story and thinking, wow, that is so powerful that you thought to do that. And they're, they didn't even know. They're, they're not labeled. Nobody knew who anybody was. That's what I thought was incredibly cool about what you did. He didn't know that he was a police officer. He didn't know he was a gang member. And they all of a sudden, they're breaking bread together, and they realize they got things in common. I love that. Absolutely. Thankful to Mitch Album. Uh, very, very compassionate man. Do a lot of good work. Who tried to be a part of the solution. And so he came and met with me uh, at the request of the mayor uh, because he was looking for someone who can be able to do something right. about it. Give it a voice. Yeah. Absolutely. And so we, uh, we, got to, we had a meeting and we came up with this thing called Better Together. And we wanted to figure out ways that we could bring people together because at that time, during the George Ford crisis, people were – talking at each other and turning on each other, you know? And so we wanted people to turn to each other and not on each other. And so we facilitated these uh, uh, barbecues and and sometimes basketball games and other events uh, to bring police officers together with unique people in the community, whether they be gang members, high school students. We did it on college campuses. Mm -hmm. We did it at a substance use place. We did it at a mental health facility. Yep. We did it at a number of places. We have done this almost 50 times yeah. uh, uh, since we started this uh, initiative. And so uh, we did it in a juvenile facility, you know, uh, bringing plain clothes police officers and just bring them together with these different groups and just have them uh, barbecue a meal together, sit down and break bread, but having them engaged in conversation throughout this process just learning about each other, learning about family, learning about sports together, and just talking about life issues together. And instantly they uh, really develop these quick relationships uh, just out of cooking together and breaking bread together. And so uh, later on, after we do these dinners or do these barbecues, we are we we have a space and time we in a in a circle and we start talking more about each other and that's when they find out that these were police officers and they be like I'm out of here you know type of stuff and then it be like by that time they had developed you know a great rapport and then we have some conversations on some hard conversations on the systemic issues that's going on in society right and then that's when we really learn that we can't label each other. Uh, we can't uh, say because you have this type of uniform on that you, you're, you're a monster or you have this kind of uniform on, you're a monster. Right. Or you're this color, you're a monster. Or you this color, you're a monster. Yeah. Or you come from this background, uh, you're a monster. We, 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 we didn't want people to demonify each other. And we, didn't, we don't go in there trying to force conversations but we go in there to facilitate conversation 
to be able to get them talking with each other. And and the more they talk with each other, they learn that hey, we're more alike than different. Yeah. Uh, because the question is, is a gang member because you are in a gang, uh, uh, or because you're young, or because you look this way? Are are you an animal? Because you wearing a uniform, a police uniform, are you an animal? Mm-hmm. You know. So let's take the labels away and find out some good things about each other. And that's when we really, really learned that we are truly better together. And and here's the thing, Daryl, you're talking about something in a, a microcosm that is the problem that we have today in the United States. You know, the, the fact of the matter is, is people aren't talking to each other, you know. The Democrats don't talk to the Republicans anymore. They used to go out to dinner together. You know, they used to hang out together. Tip O'Neill used to have a drink with Ronald Reagan at the end of the day. Oh, yeah. All these things have spread. And that's when your problems start is that if you don't hear each other, you can't get connected. There's no way to understand each other if you don't talk. And what you've done is a very simple thing, but it's so powerful. So powerful. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm very, very. Uh, grateful to be able to help facilitate these, and we're going to be doing it at a at a girls' facility, uh, a alternative for girls. And last year we did it there with a different group of young ladies, and we had an all female officer cast. I love it. To go there to help. Do I that. hope it's it something fair. that grows nationally. I think you know if, if yeah. this is an organization that's doing this much good, I mean, boy, wouldn't it be something if we could have something like this in every state? Oh, but, absolutely. So other things that you're doing, Daryl, tell us, because you, you're on a lot of different things. Go ahead and just well, let us know. I'm, <laughs> I'm the founder and CEO of my own uh, company called Fighting a Good Fight. Yep. Uh, and so we're, we're contracted with, uh, uh, say, Detroit. We contracted with a, a number of organizations to do uh, community-based work and uh, mentoring and outreach work. I'm also uh, the regional coordinator for Nation Outside. And we're doing a, we're doing a lot of uh, work in the criminal justice reform arena. I'm on a criminal justice committee for the Detroit branch of the NAACP. I'm appointed by Governor Gretchen Whitmer to the State Appellate Defenders Commission, in which we oversee all criminal appeals in the state of Michigan. In it, and, and I love that because you were a part of all that. I mean that that those are the people who should be on those seats. They need Absolutely. to be the ones sitting there and hearing these things because you know you were on the other side. It's it's fantastic. Absolutely. I've done work with Detroit Recovery Project, uh, and you, you need to have this gentleman whenever he gets time. He's going for his Ph.D. Uh, um, Andre Johnson, Detroit Recovery Project, they're doing remarkable work. I helped them do some harm reduction in which we did HIV testing and have C testing. And the reason I really wanted to be a part of that is because my mother uh, uh, died of an AIDS-related illness that uh, that I didn't know that she had all the way up into her uh, death, until she was about to die. I didn't know that she contracted HIV and then eventually contracted AIDS and ended up dying of an AIDS-related illness. And so uh, it was my honor to be able to be a part of uh, showing compassion to those who may be potentially uh, um, caught up in by that virus. And so I wanted to help people with that. And so that was another full circle moment for me. Oh, yeah. And I wanted people to not to live by stigma and, uh, and, and don't be ashamed and, and know that people 
love them and that their people care for them and there was help for them and that they didn't have to uh, die with that disease anymore because there's a lot more help uh, uh, for people who struggle with HIV and AIDS. And so I uh, did that. And I'm an elder at my church, Greta yeah. Grace Temple. Yeah. Uh, I'll be preaching in the church on Sunday at Faith Tabernacle Church in the city of Holland Park and preach throughout the region uh, to be able to bring hope uh, uh, to a world that is struggling uh, for hope and yeah. sanity. Well, tell me a little bit about your family. You're back. You, you, you've, uh, yeah. you just, what, what's, uh, what's that all like? The biggest ministry that I have, my, my daughter, uh, uh, renamed me to daddy canna. Uh, so my name is daddy canna. <laughs> I love it. That's a joke. <laughs> she going to kill me, uh, <laughs> but she can get anything she wants from me. I love yeah. my daughter. Uh, uh, she is, uh, 32 years old. She'll be 33. Uh, she has my uh, seven-year-old grandson. I pay for all this tutoring, and I took him to school this morning, and I try to stay engaged uh, in his life, and he feels that he's a young preacher himself. My son, uh, he's uh, doing a remarkably well. We have He lives in the state of Florida. Just had my new uh, grandson. He's eight months years old, where his wife had him. <laughs> uh, eight months old. Uh, uh, his name is Alexander. Uh beautiful relationship with my children my son and i are writing a book together right now we looking Love to complete it. that book very very soon you got a title for it yet we we have a uh uh we plan around with some titles working right now titles, yeah we, yeah we got some working titles and and so we looking to uh, uh get it out very soon and uh he's an author you ever uh, sleep daryl you ever you ever sleep doesn't sound like you um, ever sometimes sleep. sometimes <laughs> I, I I I waited 28 years. Yeah, you don't. You're trying to catch month. up on all that. Yes, I get it. I get it. But man, I'm so proud of what you have done. It's just you know your story makes me feel good. I think people who are going to listen to this story, you're not bitter. You could easily be bitter. I mean that that'd be it. That'd be like a a layup. I mean you, you you got guys that that once everybody said you need to be out, you had guys speaking against you, and and you're not bitter than them either. You just went out and just kept the good going, didn't give up your hope, kept the family together through all this, and now you're getting to reap the rewards of everything that you kept the faith on. And now you're doing such good things. I mean, let me ask you this, because you've had so much that's happened to you. What do you think you would impart to the listeners of your takeaway through all of your experiences of what you've lived through? Um, I would say that uh, it is true uh, by the by Martin Luther King, um, never allow someone to put you so low as to hate them. Mm. You know, love uh, should be your guiding light. In the movie Hurricane Carter, uh, great movie. Hurricane told him that uh, hate put me in here. Love gonna bust me out of here. Because Lazarus was saying, I want to bust you out of here. I want to get you out of here, you know. And so Hurricane recognized the power of love. And we need to recognize that as as a nation. 
um, that we should not turn on each other, but turn to each other. Mm. Even while I was in there, I had prison guards come to me and ask me for prayer. I had administrators in there come to me asking me for prayer. I helped advise the wardens and the deputy wardens about programs. Mm. This person that they call a prisoner. Mm-hmm. And, and I defied the label as a prisoner because I said I'm a human being. And so don't allow no one to label you. Yeah. Uh, but walk in your purpose and uh, end with this. Allow your passion to be your purpose and your purpose, your passion and everything will work out for your good. Love it. We should end it there, Daryl. That's not going to get any better than that. That's good stuff. <laughs> that is good stuff. My friend. Uh, Great. Darryl, thank you, Brent. Daryl Woods, man, thank you so much for sharing your story here. It's just, like I said, um, it just makes you feel good. It, your story, and it's got, you're doing good things and affecting change in such a positive way. Um, for everybody out there that's looking for a book, uh, since Daryl hasn't completed his yet, I wrote one. It's called Nightmare Success. Uh, the likes, uh, love those. The reviews, uh, leave me one on Apple or Spotify. Go to brentcasty.com and uh, leave me a message there if you'd like. Like I used to say when I was signing off from prison from my old Core Links, True Links email, stay strong and I'll do the same. Nightmare success, in and out. Thank you, Daryl Woods. In and out.